But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It's good to see everyone this morning. You know, uh, in one of the people that every pastor looks to at some point in ministry in different ways is, was a man by the name of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. He was a, one of the great evangelical voices in the first half of the 20th century. He became the pastor of 10th Presbyterian in 1927, and he pastored it until 1960. Um, he was uh, just a phenomenal communicator and an illustrator. He released books of illustrations, and so uh, many of us who are responsible for preaching have turned to him on how to illustrate Scripture. He was one of the pioneers of using the radio to uh, spread the gospel across the United States, and he started a program called the Bible Study Hour, which uh, became extremely popular. His successor, uh, Dr. James James Boyce carried that on for many, many years. And in 1949, on that program, he began teaching through the book of Romans. I don't know that he finished it before he passed away, but the reason why I bring his name up is because of what he did with this passage that we're dealing with this morning. In his Bible, he drew a big heart around this passage of Scripture that we are studying. And he would write in his commentary that I am convinced today after these many years of Bible study that these verses are the most important in the Bible. Think about that. That's quite, that's quite a, an evaluation of this passage. But he's not alone. Uh, another gentleman that I have u- turned to over maybe the last 25 years, he's a, a scholar within evangelical circles. He's known for the quality of his scholarship as Dr. Leon Morris. He's, he's not given to hyperbole at all. Uh, he's a very well-respected and very balanced man. And yet, in the opening sentence of his work dealing with this passage, he says about it that it is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Uh, Martin Luther uh, says similar things. John Calvin also about this passage of Scripture. 
So obviously it's important. You know, uh, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, we pointed that out at the very beginning of this series, that those verses kind of set the theme for the book of Romans. But this passage here is the central passage on which this entire book pivots. And one of the reasons why is because Paul has so far left us with a major conundrum. We have a conundrum as humans, and in a real sense, he's left God with somewhat of a conundrum too, so far in this passage, uh, as we come up to this passage. You know, in, in, in chapter 1, verses 18 to verse 20 of chapter 3, those, ver- those verses that we've looked at the last several weeks, that, that major digression that Paul took, what he did was he established the fact that all of humanity is radically, thoroughly corrupted by sin. And our conundrum is that we are totally incapable of honoring God, of doing that which is righteous and good before God. We can't atone for our sins. Even worse, we don't want to atone for our sins, right? And so when you look at our lives, we have a major conundrum. That's where we ended last week. And yet God also has a conundrum, but his conundrum is due to his righteousness, the demands of his own character. How does God deal with us who are like this, so radically corrupted by sin? I mean, think about what the Old Testament reveals about God and his interaction with sin and sinners. The Bible tells us in Psalm 33, verse 5, that God loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And the law of God, in the opening pages of the law, in Exodus 23, he gives instructions. He says, You'll not, you shouldn't pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous. And notice what he says about himself. For I will not acquit the wicked. That's quite a statement about the righteousness of God. In Proverbs 17, 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike. They are an abomination to the Lord. And so these verses give God a conundrum. God's conundrum is basically this. How does he justly justify unrighteous people like you and me? How does God justly justify sinners like us? This is a major conundrum. And that's why this passage is an important passage, because that's one of the questions that we're going to answer this morning And it demonstrates why this passage is a pivotal point in the entire book. I'm going to give you four applications this morning as we dig into this passage. Before we do, though, let's pause for a minute. We need to put on our thinking caps this morning. We need to dig in to this passage. And let's just pause and let's pray. Let's ask God to open our hearts and our minds. Heavenly Father, you are revealing deep truths about yourself and your plan for the redemption of your people in these verses. Uh, I ask that your spirit would open our minds and our ears so that we can hear what you have to tell us, open our hearts so that we can understand the implications of the truth that lay here in these words. Uh, Do your work in our lives this morning and change us so that we leave differently than the way we came in, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. 
The first of four applications this morning. Because of our sinfulness, we naturally stand unjustified and unrighteous before God. The verse 21 starts with that little conjunction, but, but now. That word is important because the conjunction points us back to what I just referred to. Everything that he referred to in chapter 3, our, our radical corruption of sin. It's summarized in verse 23, a, a verse that I memorized as a child. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Literally, all have sinned and lack the glory of God. We were created in the image of God with the glory of God. We were created, designed to walk in the presence of God, to experience the glory of God, to enjoy it, to praise Him for His glory, and to worship Him for His glory. But our sin ruined this. And because of our sin, our natural standing before God is that of those who are unrighteous and condemned. By nature, we are now children of wrath. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the Ephesian Christians, he, he describes them how they were before they turned their lives to Christ. He says this, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of this air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he concludes it by saying, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is God's verdict upon humanity. So our great need is to have our status before God changed from those who are unrighteous, condemned before God, children of wrath, in, place of, in a state of condemnation into a state of justification. And that's what justification is all about. Justification and condemnation are opposite of each other. The opposite of condemnation is justification. And so to be justified means that God acquits us so that we do not stand before him condemned for our sins, but instead we stand before him declared righteous and not guilty. That's an important understanding. We no longer, he's acquitted us. We no longer stand before him condemned for our sins. We stand before him declared righteous and not guilty. So to be clear, in a legal sense, justification is not the same thing as a pardon. We're familiar how the president gives a pardon to people who are in prison. A pardon is very different. A par with a pardon, a pardon says you are a criminal. Right? You, you are guilty for your crimes. You deserve to have this punishment that's been passed upon you. But out of the mercy of the authorities in place, we're going to release you. You are now free to go. Go about your life. Sayonara. That's a pardon. Justification is not a pardon. Justification is God saying, you are not guilty. You are not unrighteous. You are not condemned. Instead, you are righteous. You are accepted. I don't want you to leave and go. I want you to come into my presence because you are worthy as I've declared you to be so. It's very different. Justification essentially is a legal term. 
It's a legal term that belongs to that last great day when God judges all of humanity. And so what God is doing here is he's essentially telling us what his verdict is towards us on that last great day. He's bringing that future verdict into the present day. The future verdict into our nasty now and now. Why? Because he wants us to know what he's going to say about us so that it will affect how we understand our relationship to him so that it will change how we live our life right now between now and then. Justification. Because of our sinfulness, we naturally stand unjustified, unrighteous before God, every one of us needing to be justified before him. Our second application comes from verses 22 and 24. The righteousness of God, that word righteousness comes from the the Greek word diakosune, and depending on the context, it will be translated as either righteousness or justification. So verse 22 could, could just as legitimately say the justification of God through faith. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction and are justified, verse 24 said, we are justified or we are declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had Reformation Sunday. We didn't, I think we were busy here. We didn't actually make a big deal about it this year. Some years we do, some we don't. But Reformation Sunday is important because it points back to what happened with Martin Luther. And, you know, in the Reformation, Martin Luther, the book of Romans, was highly important, and this passage was. And one of the, some of the guiding principles of the Reformation were these things called the five solas, like a sola scriptura, scripture alone. But there were other solas, and they were drawn from this passage. For example, sola fide is faith alone. And sola gratia is grace alone. And sola Christus is Christ alone, right? And they were pulled from this passage. And you see these solas right here in verses 22 and 24. So I, I could not be a good Reformed Presbyterian if one of our applications didn't mimic some of these solas, right? And so this is what this application is. Uh, we are justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Okay, I've, I've, I've paid homage to our heritage here. But this is actually an important heritage. And every one of these words, these phrases are important. We, we need to actually kind of break them down and understand what they're saying. God's grace alone. This is important for us to understand. You know, a, a second ago, we, we went to Ephesians 2 about what the nature of our, our humanity is like apart from God. And then in verse 4, after he says we're children of wrath, We had that conjunction again, but God. Again, how important that little conjunction is. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Read it with me. By grace, you have been saved. One more time. By grace, you have been saved. By grace alone, God, his unmerited favor poured out upon us, not because of anything that we do to deserve it or to earn it, solely due to his love for his children. God intervenes on our behalf. He stoops down. 
He pulls us up out of the miry pit of sin. He conceives of the plan of redemption. He executes the plan. He implements it. He brings it all about in his perfect timing. And at the appointed time in each and every one of our lives who know him and who love him and who have his son as our savior, he sent his spirit into our lives to give us a heart that would love Jesus and drew us to him like a moth is drawn to the flame. And he did all of that in spite of our sinfulness. Why? It's right here. Because of the richness of his love for us. And so he gets all the glory. And that's the fifth sola, by the way. Sola Deo Gloria. To God alone is the glory. God gets all the glory because everything to do with our salvation is due to God's grace. He's the initiator, the author, and the finisher of our faith. God's grace alone. By, through faith alone. Faith is the means or the instrument by which we receive this gift of God's grace. Now, we need to talk about faith for a minute because there's a lot of confusion in evangelical circles uh, about faith. Speaking of circles, remember last week I put some circles up on the board, right? Uh, there was a circle, a perfectly white circle that represented Pelagius, the natures of men, of man. And one of them was Pelagius's view that we're born like a clean slate, perfectly righteous before God, right? That we could actually live a perfect life and earn our way into heaven, right? And then there was a, a totally black circle, which was Augustine in the Reformed view, right? We're dead in our sins, completely incapable of doing anything that is spiritually good and righteous before God. But then there was another circle that was mostly black with a little bit of white. Remember that? Remember that? Okay, you got to nod your head, even if you're faking it. Okay, thank you. All right, because I don't have the graphic, and I don't want to make him put it up there and find it and all that good stuff. All right. You know, a few years ago, I was having a conversation. That, 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 by the way, that circle was known as semi-Pelagianism, or, and by modern terms, it might be known as Arminianism, right? Uh, a few years ago, I was having a conversation with a, a dear loved one, and uh, we, we were talking about salvation and how people come to faith and and how God works in our lives. And, and he was squarely in that semi-Pelagian understanding. And how I knew this was, was some statements that he made. So for example, he said, listen, when it comes to salvation, you know, what God brings to the table is his grace. And what I brought to the table was my faith. And because I believed in Jesus, God saved me. So we bring our faith. And that's why God saves us. And other people do not express their faith in Jesus, and that's why God doesn't save them. And therefore, God is fair in sending some people to hell and some people to heaven. So, you know, essentially, it's all rest. So God gets a vote, and Satan gets a vote. We cast a deciding vote, and that lets God off the hook, right? That's essentially what's going on here. But you see, that's a weak and a wrong understanding of faith. But a lot of a lot of well-meaning Christians, that's how we view faith. And what we've done is we've turned faith into a New Testament equivalent of what the Old Testament Jews did with the law. You see, the, the Old Testament Jews, they thought, you know, the way I am accepted by God is I obey the law. And New Testament Christians say, well, the way I'm accepted by God is I believe 
and I put my faith in Jesus Christ, right? I bring faith to the equation. Tim Keller gives a great analogy that helps us better understand what faith is when we talk about faith alone. He says, in both the Old and New Testament, it is the work of Christ that merits our salvation. In both, faith is how it is received. And that's all it is. Faith is simply, and this is the important part, faith is simply the attitude of coming to God with empty hands. And here's the analogy that will help you understand it better. When a child asks his mother for something he needs, trusting that she will give it, his asking does not merit anything. It is merely the way he receives his mother's generosity. You see, faith, folks, is an attitude of trust in the promises and the character of God. And so faith is that expression that we give back to God, saying, you've said it, and I'm trusting in who you are. And I'm trusting in what you've done, Jesus, on the cross. And I'm receiving this gift. And here's what the scriptures actually point out. I don't bring faith to the table. God actually puts faith in us. You see, faith is trusting Christ. That is a spiritually good thing to do. We can't do anything spiritually good. We're dead in our sins. God has to bring us to life. He has to give us a new heart and a heart that loves Jesus. And what does he say? Through his grace, he gives us faith. He gives us the desire to repent of our sins. He gives us everything so that we turn to Christ and we receive him. That's why he gets all the glory. Everything about our salvation comes back to God. We are justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We need to be clear that when we talk about in faith alone, it's not faith in faith. The object of our faith is crucial. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Jacob and I, uh, he flew from Raleigh and I flew from Orlando, and we met in Las Vegas. And uh, we were going to Utah for a wedding, but we spent the night in, uh, in Las Vegas at a hotel there. And of course, if you've ever been to Las Vegas, you always have to go through the casino to get to the elevator to get to your hotel. And that was the first time I'd been there, first time he'd been there. And uh, so as we're walking through the casino, we're almost through, and we go by a roulette table, okay? Now, now let me just assure you now, I, I was not there playing roulette, okay? But we, our attention was captured by this rather loud, boisterous African-American man who was playing roulette. And he was clearly, you know, either he's listened to T.D. Jakes or someone like him because he was in the Word of Faith movement. And he's, he's playing roulette and he's placing large amounts of money on the same number over and over again. And he's preaching a sermon. He's got his cross around his neck and he's saying, listen, it's going to hit this number. I believe this. I have seen it. I am expressing my faith. I am going to bring it into reality. It is going to hit this number and, sh- and the ball is coming. So of course 
actually have to stop and watch this, right? And, and of course, and so the ball's going around and around, and the whole time, this guy, I mean, T.D. Jakes could take lessons from this guy. I mean, he had the theology, the word of faith theology down. He's expressing that word of faith. He is actualizing it. He's bringing it into reality. He's seeing it into his mind, and it's now going to happen. But mathematical odds are a real pain in the rear, aren't they? You know? And so we watched this two or three times, and that's what I, when we walked away, I, I told Jacob, I said, you can have all the faith in the world, but 37 to 1 odds are stinkers, right? <laughs> you know, it's not faith in faith. Folks, faith in faith is wishful thinking, okay? It's the object of our faith that matters in this passage, it's not faith in faith alone. It's faith in Christ alone. Paul will say in Philippians chapter 3 that I want to be found in him, in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but I want a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith in Christ. So justification, we're justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now with our third application, we have squarely in our sights the question that I posed to you at the beginning of this message, right? And that is, how does God justly justify unrighteous sinners like us. And so if you don't get anything else out of this message this morning, I want you to, to perk up, you know, stop thinking about fantasy football, fellas, and put your thinking caps on, because this is an important question. How does God justly justify unrighteous sinners like us? And the answer is that in order to justly justify us, God gave himself to save us from himself. And this is the beauty and the richness of these verses in verses 24 and 25 and 26, that to save us from himself or to, to justify us and yet be righteous himself, God gave himself in order to save, him, save us from his wrath. The end of verse 24 says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, verse 25, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The conundrum facing God is due to his character. Everything we know in the scriptures is that God is absolutely holy, right? He's absolutely holy. He's absolutely just. He's absolutely righteous. He is perfect and purely loving. How do all of these qualities and characteristics, how do they live in harmony as he relates to sinful humanity. That's the conundrum. How does God not violate his character and who he is? How does he remain righteous in declaring us righteous? How can he do this? This is the conundrum. And, and that's why the word here, propitiation, is such an important word. It speaks to the need 
to see God's wrath satisfied, his wrath towards our sin. It's acknowledging that God is holy and his wrath must be satisfied. In order for him to be consistent, God cannot be so loving that he ignores the sin that takes place within humanity. That, that, would, be, that would be cruel. Brian, Brian, in his message in chapter 2, gave a great illustration of this when it comes to your children. And, and if somebody were to do something to your children, could you say that you actually love them if you didn't seek justice if somebody sinned against them? And, and this is what's going on here, this dynamic that's at play. This is the conundrum. So how is it possible for any of us to satisfy God's wrath towards his sins? And the answer is we can't. We, we cannot satisfy his wrath towards our sins and be declared righteous by him. It's impossible. The only option for us as humans, if we're going to rely upon ourselves, is hell. Do you understand that? There is no way here on earth for us in ourselves to rely upon ourselves and satisfy the wrath of God towards our sins so that he will end up declaring us righteous. There is no option for us to do it ourselves. The only way we can satisfy the wrath of God towards our sins is eternal separation from God. That's how egregious our sins are to God. And this is why the cross is so important. Because the cross of Jesus Christ, it satisfies both the demands of God's holiness and the perfection of God's love. If you think about it, in the cross, God sent himself to satisfy himself. God sent himself to satisfy the demands of his own justice. God sent himself to satisfy the demands of his own holiness. He sent himself to satisfy the demands of his own wrath towards sin. The one who can satisfy God's hatred towards humanity's sin, the only one who can do that is God. So to justly justify us, God sent himself to save us from himself. This is profound when you think about it. When you think about it, in chapter 2, as Brian pointed out, our judge on the last day is Jesus. God sends Jesus to the earth, and so in Christ, our judge, our ultimate judge, is taking upon himself the judgment towards our sins so that we can be reconciled to God so that the Wrath of God can be satisfied and that we can receive the declaration of righteousness. To put it in modern terms, think of it like this. The judge sits on the bench and he declares you and me guilty of murder, deserving the death sentence. He, he sentences us to the electric chair. And then after sentencing us to the electric chair, he climbs down from the bench. He walks to the prison he straps himself into the chair and says, flip the switch. This is what God has done. And so the cross is the perfect picture 
of both God's unsearchable holiness and God's unfathomable love for his people. They're both at the same time. And so a passage like this one, when you think about this, you let this rattle around in your head, that in order to justify us, the conundrum that God had, the way he has to settle this is to send himself to save us from himself. And at, at that point, it really begins to change our perspective on all kinds of verses in the Bible. Simple verse, verses that we've learned, even from many of us from childhood, but it gives them a completely different richness. Uh, hey, read it with me. A verse that we all know, but read it now with this bouncing around in your head, this idea that what God has done here to solve this conundrum, read this verse and see if it doesn't change a little bit of your perspective of it out loud. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This verse that we know so well takes on even a richer, fuller meaning when we understand, yeah, to satisfy his own justice, to justify us, to save us from himself, God had to send himself. One final application. And it's really the implication of this because this is such a humbling truth, right? Paul says, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By, by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of law. Is God the God of Jews only? No. Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. When we realize what's going on here, what we see is that we have no place for pride and spiritual pride. A fourth application, what God has done to assure our justification obliterates any reason we may have for spiritual pride. And it opens the door to salvation for any who wish to be made right with God. This is the good news of the gospel, right? We, we, can't, we can't be proud of ourselves, right? We, we're all, as he's pointing out here, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, the Jew has no right to come and say, look at me, look at how righteous I, religious I am. We don't have, you can come to church all your life. You don't have the right to say, oh, I'm in here because of my faith and because I, no, we have no right to be boastful because all of us come before God as sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every one of us. And the point that he's making is because it's by faith, and it's totally dependent upon what Christ has done. None of us received this because we've earned it. It's totally a gift based upon God's grace. So we can't boast. We can't promote ourselves. We can't pat ourselves on the back. We can't say, well, the reason why is because I'm better or smarter or wiser or anything than the other person. It's completely due to God's grace. This is the most pride-shattering truth in the Scriptures. When we get to heaven, every one of us that is there, 
is solely due to the grace of God. And it's also one of the most inspiring truths because it tells every one of us who's here this morning that regardless of our skin color, regardless of our station in life, regardless of our education, regardless of our nationalities or our backgrounds or our status within society, none of that matters. The only thing that matters is this. Do you wish to have your sins forgiven? Do you wish to be reconciled with God? Do you wish to have a relationship with your creator? Do you wish to have that peace that passes all understanding? Then if you do, come. Come, Jesus says, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Trust in Christ, in Christ alone. You can do that this morning. Lord Jesus, pour your grace out on your people that are here. Some who know you, some who may not know you. For the one who doesn't know you, would you open hearts and minds and reveal the true state of their spiritual condition? Lord, there may be spiritual pride there that's a block to them actually receiving the blessings of the gospel. Would you open eyes to that pride Would you give them a heart that is humbled before the cross? Lord, for the one who does know you this morning, would you you freshly help us to, to see the beauty of your grace? Help us to live in light of that grace, to be humble before you, to appreciate and worship and praise you for the love that you've poured out in our lives in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that you gave yourself to save us from yourself, from your wrath. That your love is as perfect as your holiness is absolute. Thank you for the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.